If you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And I'm going to be reading the first eight verses. Genesis 12, beginning verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a very strong sense of how much we need you, of our dependence on you of the fact that apart from you, we really can do nothing. And that includes that we can neither fully understand nor apply your word apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that the same Spirit who inspired Moses to write these words down would work in everybody in this room, uh, that you would open our minds to understand your word, you would open our hearts to not just hear it but love it, and that you would transform our wills to obey it. Father, we ask you to do what only you can do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a turning point in your life that was so significant that from then on, everything was either before or after that point? Um, I've had a couple. I'm, I'm old enough to have had multiple such turning points. Uh, the first was when I was 13 years old. And very abruptly, my father died from a brain tumor. And pretty much then on, it was like before and after dad died. He was there as a great father, and then he was gone. Certainly, uh, getting married 33 years ago was such a turning point. I hope all the rest of you here who are married can say the same. Uh, but it certainly is a very dramatic change uh, to become one with someone else. And in my case, as some people in this room can testify, I married dizzyingly above myself, and that was a very dramatic change that I experienced. So everything is either before or after marriage, and at 64, 33 years ago means that now more than half my life has been spent as a married man. Uh, 30 years ago, this year, Catherine and I moved overseas, and that changed me so much that sometimes I don't even recognize the me before I moved into Central Asia Another one of those turning points. Well, this passage that we have here is a turning point in Scripture that literally just defines everything. 
everything after this in the Bible all points back to this event, to this moment right here. Let's just remember the story, remember the background here. The Bible is not just a random collection of stuff. It's not some rules and some stories and some poems and and some promises, and we can just pluck out of it what we want without attention to context. The Bible is, in fact, a narrative. It is a continuous story with a beginning. It has a plot with a climax and a conclusion. Uh, The author of that story is God himself. He also is the main actor and the only hero. And the story goes like this, just to get us up to speed here. In the beginning, God created everything. And he created it just by speaking it into being. God didn't do that because he needed anything or because he was lonely. God was not lonely. God was infinitely happy in the fellowship of the Trinity. God created everything out of, as an overflow of his greatness and for the display of his glory. And everything God made was good. Now, as the crown of that creation, God made a man and a woman. We know him as Adam and Eve. And that man and woman were created in his image. What that meant was that they were created to reflect his character and to represent his rule in the good world that he had created. And they had, they had it made. They had everything. Everything around them was good, and they themselves had no inclination at all toward anything bad. And yet, under the temptation of Satan, who took the form of a serpent, They chose to disbelieve God, and in consequence, they disobeyed God. And as a result of that rebellion, everything bad in the world happened. Everything. So their relationship with God was broken. Their relationship with each other was broken. Their relationship with the created order was broken, such that now life would be hard. The created order itself was subject to decay. And sin would now characterize the human race from then on. It was a terrible, horrible day. And literally all that is evil in the world harkens back to that. But in the middle of that tragedy, in the middle of that disaster, God spoke just a word of hope. As he was pronouncing judgment on all the characters in the story, he said that the woman would have a seed. There would be a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Not a lot to go on. No real indication as to what that meant or how it would happen, but still it was there. But from then on, for the next several chapters of the Old Testament, all we really see is just the consequence of human rebellion against God. We see how ugly sin is. The first two brothers became the first murderer and the first murder victim. Things got worse and worse until finally a guy named Lamech actually said, I'll kill a guy just for, just for striking me. I'll kill seven people for harming me. And it got to the point that God said that he regretted making humanity because, and I quote, all the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. So God showed up on the scene as a judge. And God judged the wickedness of the human race by bringing a flood that wiped everything out. But he also showed up as a redeemer, as a deliverer, as someone who would come and rescue the people that he had made by rescuing one family, the family of Noah, and at least one pair of everything that has the breath of life in it. Now, you'd think after something like that, people would have learned. They'd straighten up, fly straight, all that sort of thing. But no, they just went right back into the same spiral of wickedness. 
They, they rebelled against God who told them to fill the earth by saying, instead, let's build a city to stay together and make a name for ourselves, not for God. So God showed up again as a judge. He scattered the nations and peoples of the earth by diversifying their languages such that they could not understand one another. And yet even then, he created a framework that he would subsequently use. And it's in that context then that God brings Abraham onto the scene. And this is where the rescue operation that God put in place really kicks off. And this is the story that will continue for the rest of the Bible and for the rest of human history. Abram, as he was first known, was born in what's now Iraq, in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. His father, Terah, picked up his tent and a few of his, his family members and headed north into a place called Haran, which is basically southern Turkey now, and then settled there. And seemingly everything was just sort of going on as normal. I mean, odds are good that these people were idol worshipers, but they had some knowledge, some vestigial knowledge of the Most High God, probably still a memory carried on from the time of Noah. And then God steps into the scene. And notice the elements of this story. God spoke to Abram. God hadn't spoken to anybody as far as we can tell since Noah. God spoke to Abram, which meant that God chose to reveal himself, communicate himself to undeserving people. And it's he who took the initiative. Abram wasn't looking for God. God came looking for him, which is the pattern from then on. And God revealed himself by communicating with this man who didn't deserve it. Now, God made a demand on Abram's life. He said, go. Go from and go to. Go from everything you've ever known. Go from your family, your kindred, the place you've lived, the life you're used to. Leave that behind. That's very specific. And then he says, go to, and all he says is the place I'll show you. It's like he's not even going to tell him where it is until he gets there. He just says, go, I will lead you, trust me. Do what I'm telling you to do and leave the destination in my hands. But then God made a series of unilateral, unconditional promises, promises that are not dependent on anything in Abram at all. Now, often when we think about promises of God in the Old Testament particularly, we think sort of the if-then kind of thing. If you obey me, if you keep my covenant, then I will do this for you. If you don't, I will do this. There's no if-then in, in these statements. This is a unilateral agreement imposed by God. And he says, I'm going to do some things for you, period, full stop. I'm just going to do them. And the things he's going to do are amazing. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, if we had read the last two paragraphs of the chapter before of Genesis 11, then you would know, and some of you already do know, that Sarah, his wife, was barren. She couldn't have kids. And these folks are old. I mean, he's 75, she's like 65 at this point. So he's telling this old, barren couple that he's going to make a great nation out of them. Pretty amazing promise right then and there that they who are childless 
will be the ancestors of a great multitude. He says, I'll bless you. And he did. Uh, Abram lived in basically a desert area, and he lived in uncertain times. It's, it's a time when, when you could have famine, you could have locusts, you could have invading kings like what happened in Genesis 14 when Lot ends up getting kidnapped by this invading force coming out of Mesopotamia. Uh, all sorts of things could happen, but God took care of Abram and met his every need. He said, I'll make your name great. And boy, did he. Now, I want you to consider that Abram lived 4,000 years ago. Now, just rehearse in your mind the names of all the people you know of from 4,000 years ago. Exactly. That would be one. And his name's Abraham. That's the only one we know. He made his name really great forever. And Abraham, Abraham to this day is revered in three religious traditions and is known the world over. He says, I'll bless those who bless you, which is to say, your blessing is going to be such that anybody who favors you or helps you, your blessing is going to spill over to them. And whoever dishonors you, I will curse. It's not going to be safe to oppose you. He told him, I'll give your offspring this land of Canaan. So I'm going to give you both descendants and a place for them to live right here in the land of Canaan. And then he makes the promise that makes him so significant to us. He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is where it gets amazing. And this is what makes this man so significant both to the ends of the earth and to the ends of time. Look at the details of this promise. He gives both an extent of the promise that, that all, the all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And this is so important that God's going to repeat it a total of four times. So he tells Abram here, all the families of the earth. He tells Abraham again, right after he almost sacrifices Isaac in Genesis 22, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. He says to Isaac directly, all the nations will be blessed through your offspring. And then he says it again to Jacob where he uses the word families. So all the families, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. This means then that God has an intention that is global. Now, at this point in the Old Testament, God's focus seems to narrow to one man and then one family and then one nation, the man of Abraham, his descendants, who eventually become the nation of Israel. And yet he has made it clear at the start that he's not doing that because he's ignoring the rest of the globe, because he's ignoring the rest of the human race. He's doing that as part of a very well thought out plan that will bring a blessing of some kind to all the nations and all the families of the earth. And by the way, when we're talking about nations here, we're not talking about countries with a seat in the UN and a flag and an army and that sort of thing. We're talking about people groups. We're talking about tribal groups or language groups. There may be many in a small geographic area, but any group of people who thinks of themselves as us versus them, that's a nation in biblical terms. And he's saying all of them are going to be taken in to this blessing that I'm going to pour out on you. Now, the blessing itself is not specified here other than the land and the people, but it becomes clearer as the Old Testament progresses. As a matter of fact, as you go on, you see God really being incredibly gracious and merciful to Israel, but he also keeps promising that the day is coming when he's going to include all the nations as part of his people. 
The blessing of being an Israelite is when God said, you are my people and I'm your God. There is this special permanent relationship between you and me. But God promises that the day will come in which all the nations and all the peoples will be included into that people, will also have that same special relationship with the living God. And because the reason why there's even a problem, why anyone isn't part of the people of God, is because of their rebelliousness against God, because of their sin problem, God promises he's going to take care of that. And he's going to take care of that through the servant. God himself is going to become a person in order to offer his life as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. Isaiah 53 couldn't be clearer. That is talking about substitutionary atonement, about sacrifice in our place. And yet in Isaiah 52, which actually is part of the same passage, I mean, the, the chapter divisions were added later. They weren't inspired by God. And in the last paragraph of chapter 52, he in, indicates very clearly that this is going to include nations, not just the people of Israel. The very passage, in fact, that talks about God's intention to redeem his people through a sacrifice also contains the verse that Paul used in Romans 15 to justify his intention to take the gospel to those who had never heard it because the two are wedded in Scripture. What came next is very simply that Abram's life was turned upside down. He'd been given this astonishing promise. He had been told to go, and he went. And so his faith expressed itself in obedience by going. We notice that everywhere Abraham went, he worshiped. Everywhere he went, he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. And as things go on, God makes the whole promise clearer and clearer. In chapter 15, God actually set up this elaborate formal covenant ceremony in which animals are divided, and God symbolically goes between the split parts of those animals, indicating that what happened to the animals should happen to him if he was ever unfaithful to his promises. That's what makes a covenant so amazing. God binds himself to be faithful, even as he calls on us to be as well. Circumcision was given as the sign of that covenant in Genesis 17. We learn through all of this that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And thus we get a hint already of justification by faith rather than by works. There's the promise and then the deliverance of a son, the son Isaac, God protected Abram again and again throughout his life. And so God, so God is fulfilling his promise to a certain extent to Abraham. And yet, he died without seeing it fulfilled. Now, it's true that within three generations, his family had gone from a barren older couple to 70 people who went down to Egypt. When they left Egypt 400 years later, there were hundreds of thousands of them. Those people then continued to multiply in the land. And it's also true that they got the land under Joshua and then lost it because of their disobedience and then got it back after the Babylonian exile and then lost it again. But this blessing to the nations isn't there at all. There's nothing in the Old Testament that indicates that that was fulfilled. That comes in the New Testament. And that's why you cannot read Genesis 12 
without also reading Galatians 3. So I'd like to ask you to flip over there. The apostles very clearly realized that what God had been talking about in his promises to Abraham would be fulfilled, had been fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus. So Galatians number, chapter 3, and I'll begin with verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified by God before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through him. Then flipping over to verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this is astonishing. What he is saying here, very clearly and directly, is that when God says to Abraham in 2000 BC, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he is preaching the gospel to him. To him. That that is fulfilled through nothing less than the gospel, the good news that God became a man in the person of Jesus, who lived the life we should have lived, and then died the death we deserve to die, took the wrath of God on himself, and then rose again as the conqueror of sin and death and hell. So God's promise that all nations would be blessed happens through Christ. It's in Christ that this whole covenant, this whole set of promises is fulfilled. Abraham ties directly to Jesus. And it also means that in Christ, you and I, if you are in Christ yourself, are now sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham who inherit this amazing blessing. The thing is that the job that's implied in that passage isn't done yet. You will notice that in Genesis, God keeps using that word all, all families, all nations, all nations, all families. It's come as far as us, but it's not yet come as far as all nations. The saving plan of God included even distant Gentiles like us, but that same saving plan also includes all the nations that have not yet heard. What that means then is that the redemptive work that God, starting here, actually starting back in Genesis 3, said that he would accomplish the saving work through Jesus that saved all of us who are in Christ was never intended to be just for us. 
It was always intentionally global and trans-ethnic in its intention, its purpose, and its fulfillment. So, just to summarize, Abraham marks the beginning of God's rescue mission for fallen humanity. God made a covenant, a promise agreement with Abraham, and that covenant includes us. You are saved through God's covenant with Abraham. That covenant included immediate blessings for Abraham, but it also included global blessings, the blessing of salvation for all families and all nations. The covenant was fulfilled by Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham. And if we are in Christ, then we also the offspring of Abraham. We are the people, we are the descendants, the family of Abraham that are more numerous than the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on, on the sea. So what does that mean then for us now here today? Uh, the first thing I would, I would just ask you to do is recognize the incredible magnificence of God's plan. Jesus was just not an afterthought. God had been up to something since the beginning of time. He had been carefully putting the pieces together in Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And just as that was not a bolt out of the blue, so also the Great Commission is not a bolt out of the blue. This wasn't something that God sort of said as an afterthought at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's what he had been up to from the start. His plan of redemption was always a global plan. Recognize then the scope of God's plan, all families, all nations, and it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And then in terms of personal application, I just want to mention these things that I think each will apply to some, if not all, the people in this room. First of all, if you yourself are not in Christ, if you have never repented of your rebellion against God, and trusted in Christ as your substitute, as the sacrifice who atones for your sin. If you have not abandoned all hope in yourself and put all your hope and faith in him, then you are one of those who is outside this blessing. As a matter of fact, you face, at this point, a terrifying eternity under the judgment of God because we will all be judged. We will either be judged on our own record which earns condemnation for us, or we will be judged on Jesus' record if we put our faith in him, which will justify us before God and make us acceptable in his sight. So I plead with you, find someone to talk to, but if you are not in Christ, then don't leave here today before you have made that, I don't want to say decision, before you have surrendered to that royal summons from the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you are a believer... If you are in Christ, recognize that you don't get to choose whether you're part of God's agenda in the world or not. You're adopted into it. That sort of comes as a package deal. And that means that you yourself need to embrace all that it means to be a follower of Christ, all that it means to be even a descendant of Abraham. You know, when Adam and Eve fell, they defaced the image of God. But Christ is the perfect image of the invisible God. And those of us who are in Christ are now being remade by the Holy Spirit to be conformed to the image of God so that we then fulfill what God intended for us all the way back in Adam and Eve. 
And so to be a follower of Jesus means to be a disciple of Jesus who is becoming more and more like Jesus all the time. But see, that's also what a missionary is. A missionary is simply a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus where Jesus is not yet known. And so I'd encourage you to grow in your own discipleship, which means conformity to Christ's image, but it also means a transformation of the purpose of your life. When you are a disciple of Jesus, you exist for the praise of his glory. You exist for the advancement of his agenda in the world, wherever you are to the ends of, ends of the earth. So grow yourself as a disciple of Jesus. I would encourage you, as you've already heard from your pastor, to engage deeply in prayer for the advance of the gospel. We are unapologetically supernaturalist in our understanding of the universe, and we believe that God is pleased to use the prayers of his people to advance his agenda. And I can speak as someone who's been decades on the field that we counted on the prayer support of the people of God to do what he had called us to do. I encourage you to continue, as you already have, to give financially, to send missionaries to the ends of the earth, and thank you for all that you have done up to this point. But what I especially want to impress on this congregation of people is that God assembled you here to be an outpost of the gospel, here and to the ends of the earth. That means that you have the responsibility of sharing the gospel where you are, and it also means that you have the responsibility of sending the gospel where it isn't yet. Remember, a missionary is someone who makes disciples where Christ is not yet known. And that means that this church needs to be literally a missionary factory. You need to be pushing people out all the time. And the kind of people we need actually encompasses just about everybody. So, yes, we need young people, and I think... We often think of missions as a young person's game, and yet we do need young people. We also need older people. Um, I discovered when, when this fell out and this turned white that I could actually get away with more. I could be more bold in sharing the gospel in my part of the world, which is the Muslim world, because of my age, because they have a more biblical perspective on age than America does. They actually thought it was an honorable thing to be old. Whereas for some bizarre reason, this culture thinks it's a good thing to be young. There's no accomplishment to being young. You just are. Those of us who are older at least have survived this long. That's something, okay? And hopefully we've picked up some wisdom along the way. So actually, retirees are incredibly useful in sharing the gospel in places where a young person would not get a hearing. But I now, as an older man, often do. And yes, we need preacher types. We need those with formal theological training. But many of the places in the world that most need the gospel are also places that won't grant missionary visas. I've actually never had one. And so you need to do something else that will enable you to have access to the place where people live who have never heard about Jesus. And that can be just about any profession. And so we are looking for business people of all kinds, medical workers of all kinds, lawyers, accountants, engineers, artists, sports coaches, as you've already heard. If you have a skill or profession, that can be used, leveraged to get you into places where someone with a missionary visa could never go. And so whatever you bring to the table 
it could very well be used for the sake of the advance of the gospel. The key thing here is a willingness to go. And that goes back to what I said earlier about the transformation of our purpose when we become disciples of Jesus. You are not your own, and I am not my own. I don't belong to myself, and the purpose of my existence is no longer to be affluent or to have a big, big reputation or to advance in a career or to have, you know, a house with a picket fence and a dog and 3.5 children and whatever else the American dream might happen to be. The purpose of my existence is to live to the praise of his glory and to advance his agenda. And unless Jesus comes back first, we're all going to die anyway. And so we need to make the most of this time before we enter infinite glory that we can't even begin to imagine. And so the real key is that you are prepared to place your life on the table and say, God, it's yours. What do you want me to do with it? I exist for your purposes, not for my own. And specifically in light of the fact that there is so much of the world with no access to the gospel, while you live in a place with abundant access to the gospel. I mean, over 3 billion people in the world live among people groups with zero access. No Bibles, no churches, no believers, no missionaries. Over 3 billion people fall in that category out of 7 billion alive in the world. And even overall, when you look at the world's population, out of 7 billion people, only 4% of the world is evangelical Christian. And those fo the, that 4% is focused, concentrated in the United States and places like South Korea. So in light of all of that, the question should not be, God, should I go? But God, why shouldn't I go? My default is to be mobilizable by you to go where I'm needed most. And God, I'll go wherever you tell me to go with the default that I'll go where I'm needed more unless you tell me to stay in a place where there is already more gospel witness. My hope and my prayer for this church is that God sends scores of you to the ends of the earth and that that just keeps happening. As God blesses this church with ongoing growth, he also blesses it with ongoing sending. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful to you for this church. I'm grateful to you for its faithfulness to your word. Father, for its desire to reach the nations, for its desire to reach Atlanta. Father, I pray that you would pour out the power of your spirit on the witness of this church here in this area, that many here would come to know Jesus by their words. And Father, I pray that you would raise up more and more from this congregation who would take the gospel where it's not yet known, whatever the cost. And I pray this in Jesus' name.